0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio
1: nerds. It's Amit Goyal. Our cardiovascular prevention series continues. William Osler once said that the good physician treats the disease but the great physician treats the patient who has the disease. In the last episode, we learned about risk stratification in our case discussion using an illustrated case as he walked through the years of key points in a patient's life. Today, we get to meet that same patient up close and personal. Kunuk Amin tells us what these events were like for him, what helped him, what didn't help, and the advice he has for both patients and doctors. Now, Kunuk is an integral part of the Cleveland Clinic, in his role as Nuclear Lab Manager, and has had tremendous impact on many individuals, we get to hear from two of them, Drs. Weil Jaber and Nishan Shah, who knew Canuck personally, professionally, and medically. We're also joined by a special guest, Dr. Zach Iljovene, who you'll remember from a prior episode. Zach, like myself, also had the opportunity to learn from Konak during our Nuclear Hot Lab elective and took care of him while in the ICU. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by CardioNerds who just love cardiology and teaching. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Connick has given us consent to share the details of his case. Also, we apologize in advance for some background noise. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey CardioNerds! Today's is a very special episode. In our case discussion episode, you all really got to know our patient's medical history and disease diagnoses. But today I am so excited for you all to get to meet our patient, Kanak Amin. We get the special treat of learning from his journey as a heart patient. As in our case discussion, we will walk through the years to understand his first person's perspective as a star patient of our cardiovascular prevention series. Gunak, it gives me such great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. It's, I've heard a great thing about your podcast <laughs> recently, Guardianers. You know, I looked into it, so it's a very great, and I was excited to be here when you invited me to <laughs> look at my
1: history. So, <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I met you here as your part in the nuclear lab here at the Cleveland Clinic, but would you mind just telling us who you are, Outside the hospital,
2: yeah, sure. In a sense, I'm a, I'm an Indian guy from Gujarat state, and this is my professional part. Is as you guys all know, is a radiochemist. I'm the program manager for the nuclear medicine lab. And outside work, I basically do get myself in trouble. In a sense, I do constructions, woodworking, get into little businesses on the side. <laughs> And so basically, I'm pretty active, you know, but not like exercise active. I'm moving around and everything. I'm kind of active. 62 years old, married,
1: got one kid, been working at the clinic for about 31 years. Amazing. Speaking of all your businesses, we've all definitely benefited from your financial advice and perspectives on stocks. I've seen uh, IR attendings come in and get your take on taxes and and house purchases. But, uh, you know, I also... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a true story. Um, I also want to introduce, or rather, should I say, reintroduce our other guest, Zach Iljovene. You all met Zach in an earlier episode when we discussed cardiac amyloidosis imaging with Dr. Paul Kremer. Zach, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Thanks, Simon. I am glad that kind of got a chance to introduce himself from his perspective, but what does he do for the fellows? Like, how do we, how do we get to know him?
0: you know that's it's it's hard to put it in into words but i think the easiest thing is he is the reason that any one of us can take and pass nuclear medicine boards <laughs> uh, you know we we have the opportunity to spend a, a month with him during our third year in the nuclear lab not just you know reading scans which i think is what we're uh, used to but you know learning about nuclear medicine learning about isotopes learning about the process and the history and then, as you mentioned, it's also good to take your temperature as far as financial health, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and and then life advice. So Kanak has the <laughs> has the experience that in in many things, and it's been fantastic. So, and then he also does this nuclear medicine review for any of the fellows taking boards, which is a huge help and we're very appreciative.
1: Spot on, Zach. You know, I I asked Anirudh Kumar before I started the rotation. I was like, hey, so what do you actually do in a hot lab elective? Like, what do you what's, yeah. the, what's it about? What do you learn? He's like, well, you know, you learn about life. <laughs> and I found it to be pretty ambiguous, you know? And so I came down, I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into, but I've just really enjoyed spending time with you in the lab. I remember the first day we started talking about quark theory and I thought like, what, a, you know, as a cardiovascular fellow, you know, like it's, it's different. So kind of let's dive into your history and your perspective for the audience here. Sure. In 2004, you were, I think, 46 years old mm-hmm. uh, when you came in for back pain and they, they found that you had kidney stones. Right. At this time, you had no medical diagnoses. Do you remember this visit? And, you know, just what was life like back in 2004?
2: Well, 2004 was good. I mean, the economy was good. My businesses were going good. I'm a young guy <laughs> <laughs> going through midlife crisis. <laughs> you know, my eating style was not so great. I would grab whatever's available. But anyway, so what happened was I was having little smile pains in the back for a little bit. Then it got excruciating bad that I couldn't stand it. So I had to walk to the ER and they did all the tests and found that I had kidney stones. And of course, that was painful for the next two days, drinking a lot of fluids and passing. So finally, once it passed out, I was pretty much okay and no other symptoms um, from
0: that point on to the next event. So, I, during this time, thankfully, you didn't have any cardiovascular problems, but you did have an important family history of heart disease. Would you mind telling us about the loved ones in your family who have had heart disease? Yeah, sure, sure. You know,
2: I don't mind sharing that one. Uh, with you guys all so my dad was had a heart I mean triple bypass over here at the Cleveland I forget the time but it must have been around like 20 24 years old somewhere around this I don't remember exactly what he uh, so he had cardiovascular diseases and then he passed away at my age right now about 63 that was quite some time ago and then my other brothers I have three brothers they all had uh, cardiac issues so they were stented they're older than me. I'm the youngest one in the family. So basically, we had a tradition of <laughs> carrying on the heart disease <laughs> in the family.
1: We're so sorry to bring up these these memories about your family. You know, my, my dad actually had presented with chest pain. They found uh, pretty severe blockage in one of the main vessels, and he got a stent. And he did fine, thankfully. But, you know, actually, in just that moment... By itself, even though it wasn't complicated, it was such a scary time for the family. And so I I definitely appreciate you going over that for us. But it really does help us better understand your personal risk for heart disease because it helps us understand your familial background for heart disease. Did you personally ever think that your family history would have any bearing on your own health?
2: No, not at that stage you know i mean when i was around 46 i was able to move around you know i used to work work my clinic job and then get up early in the morning at four go, so you know i didn't even think anything else everything was fine slept well i didn't even think about this silent killer that's going on in my body uh, never realized till all this episode started occurring you know and when you're young you can conquer the world but <laughs> The world has conquered you.
1: (laughs) No, I I get that. And I think many people are in the same boat and don't realize that there's a connection there, right? So I wonder, would it have impacted your approach to life or what you ate, how much you exercised in general, if a doctor or somebody else had told you earlier on that your family history and just coming from South Asia in general meant that you were more likely to get heart disease?
2: Definitely, you know, so in a sense, if someone would have at least told me or physician-wise in medical examination, someone had told me, hey, your probabilities of getting your heart uh, disease are higher. Maybe you should uh, reevaluate your lifestyle. It would have sunk in. From what I know now, if I go back then, I would have definitely done. I'm not so sure what I would have done then. But I think it would have been a good advice, at least seed is planted in the head. And that would have at least done something to it.
1: It's very helpful to get your perspective on that, because I can personally say that when a busy clinic visit, family history is is one of the areas where I probably don't spend a lot of time delving into and and really teasing out. And for the patients that have a family history, I'm sure I can personally do a better job connecting the dots for the patients.
2: I think we should do a whole better job. I should... Not being a physician, but I should at least tell people if they have a family, friends or something, hey, maybe check, we could see your physician. know. <laughs> <laughs> would be a good idea, you know. <laughs> we all can do our part. The physicians are not, I mean, they treat the diseases of them. But there are other people, too, who have been through it, should go tell other people, friends, families, like, hey, go check the doctor
1: out, go get a test done, go get a blood work done, you know. This is one of the reasons we have you on the show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Canuck, if we fast forward to 2008, you came to the clinic with chest pain and had your first stress test. Do you remember that?
2: Yeah, kind of. uh, It was working. I mean, I'm fortunate in a sense I'm working with all the cardiologists around here. They are right within a shelf. Way so I'm really fortunate so I don't think everyone has access to what I have access to but in that case I'm very fortunate to work here and have all you guys wonderful guys around me. So what happened was I had Dr. Jaber up there who is also a member of our department so I was talking to him I said I'm having this discomfort in my chest so he suggested we should get a stress test done you know so of course he took care of everything you know I did so he just and, and did a stress echo on me. And I believe it was normal, so that was, I think, the end of it. You know, it basically told me to lose weight a little bit.
1: Can I ask you a quick question before sure. a follow up? Did you at all, you know, you spend, you taught me how to draw up technetium doses for nuclear stress tests and whatnot. Did you at all feel bad that you were sent for a debutamine echo and not a technetium study? <laughs> <laughs> is that like, is that just like the irony, of it just dawned on me. <laughs> 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 Well the (laughs) (laughs) iron I
2: know, the I I thought that too, so the I
3: i to, to ask Dr. about that.
2: Yeah, I think that's better. to plan. But no, I could tell you why we decided to do echo and not nucleus, because yeah. I deal with a lot of radiation. So he just uh, felt this is my first uh, stress test. It is best that we do an echo. And if it is abnormal, then we can. If we had to. We'll do nuclear to get more specific. But he says, no, you deal with a lot of radiation. Why get exposed unnecessary radiation, which I agree
0: with him in a way.
1: You know? So actually a, a great side pro on, uh, on one of the pitfalls yeah. of uh, nuclear scans. Yeah.
0: So at that time, were you worried about anything in particular?
1: Not
2: really. Well, you know, you you worry about it. It's like, do I have a hard thing? I mean, before the stress uh, echo. In a sense, the kids are young, you know. I mean, one kid is young. and You worry about all this stuff what's going to happen to them, you know, the family and everything. So you have this little cloud hanging on your head. I know, but when the results came out, then you go back to yourself again.
1: <laughs> I can certainly understand that. and Thankfully, that stress test was negative. But having had the symptoms that you were having, you know, you're the only one in your body. Did you find the negative results reassuring? And did you continue to have symptoms afterwards? How did that progress?
2: Yeah, you know, that's very good. So I had this this discomfort, you know, they weren't really pain. They were kind of more like a discomfort. And then you said it might be muscular because the kind of work I do after after hour works, like after I leave the thing,
1: like heavy construction
2: work.
1: <laughs> well, and Roland, do you remember how heavy those generators are? Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Molly generator. it's all the muscle or something, yeah. So that was the one thing and it was
0: not continuous, it would come and go let's move on to 2015. That's when you were first diagnosed with diabetes. Correct. Uh, do you remember what symptoms you were having then that tip your doctor off to even think about checking an A1C? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, that one I'm, I'm very comfortable with talking about the diabetes part. So basically about six
2: months or seven months earlier, I was kind of frequently urinating, thirsty, running to the bathroom every two hours. I mean, this is not normal, you know? I mean, it's like so something was... So my mother was diabetic, so my wife is a fortunate, you know? Again, I mean, I was blessed. Uh, so she stayed with us, and my wife would take her... Uh, blood sugar every day in the morning to make sure because she was on an insulin and mm. so one morning she just pricked me <laughs> and I checked my sugar
1: <laughs> because was oh, complaining you know i didn't i didn't <laughs> wow. know
2: that actually so then i found out it was like 220 something on the glucose level up there she goes well maybe you're eating too much sugar so she cut down on my sugar so for a whole week i was without sugar or anything. then she checked the next week and it was about 180 so i knew right away back then when she's did this thing. I knew right away that this is my frequent urination, being in the medical part of it. So I knew this is that. So I called my primary and said, hey. So you he kind of questioned me. He said, why do you think you? <laughs> so, but anyways, I was fortunate to know enough about it, to find out about it. So then, of course, he called me and we did our blood work. And sure enough, I didn't expect it to be so high, 11.7, 11, 11, 11.6. But I was surprised too when I saw the A1C results.
1: You're educated, you're proactive, you have really high health literacy. And so I think, you know, you sort of stumbled upon your own diagnosis thinking about it in a very rational way. But I I wonder how many patients go through these symptoms for weeks or months without ever even seeking medical attention. The diagnosis of diabetes is a pretty major thing to find out about yourself. Do you remember how you felt or what you were thinking when you were first realizing that, hey, you actually have diabetes? It sounds like you have some perspective from having had a family member who had diabetes. How did you take that news and... What do you think was uh, going on? What was on your mind at the time?
2: Oh, I could tell you that one because when I was diagnosed as diabetic, uh, the first thing came in my head is I hated insulin poking because my mother was <laughs> yes. on it. I go, oh, gee, you know, because I didn't know the extent of it. All this. So, but luckily they put me on metformin. So, I was uh, said when they come around, I had to readjust how I ate and exercise, I had to reevaluate my uh, well being. And that's what came around. And I said, okay, I have to get motivated. And that's what happened. So I got educated with the diabetes a little more and controlled my intakes and started
0: exercising. Do you have any advice for us when we're, Telling someone for the first time that they have a diagnosis like diabetes? Oh, definitely. I I
2: think you should recommend people to take these diabetic classes that they offer across the country and major hospitals have them. It is very, very important that these patients go. Doesn't matter what their background is, they should go look at these diabetic classes. This is a little long involved, about three, four, but that's where they teach you what, how to do exercise, what, what, what how to read food labels, you know, because most people look at it and say, it's like, oh, it's sugar-free. Sugar-free does not mean that it doesn't have carbs. (laughs) So, but most of the people think, oh, sugar-free, so I can eat this. I'm diabetic, I can eat that one. So, but they need to go to this. uh, So they get a better perspective of how to buy their food, how to look at the labels and what to eat. When they go to restaurants, you know, what they can eat. And one of the biggest misconception is, you know, when people say, oh, I'm diabetic, that means I can't eat this heavy carbs or sugar. That's not true. You can eat, but it's a portion control, you know, everything is portion control, you know, can't have a whole bagel, but I can't have an eighth of a bagel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, personally, portion control I, probably makes it more sustainable also, you know, because I okay. do have a sweet tooth, but I think controlling uh, the portion is really important, you know, and then Either because of your own intrinsic positive response to adversity, or the diabetes education, or having had prospective diabetes in the past, some combination of that. What you did next was really nothing short of amazing and truly inspiring, Kanak. You somehow lost thirty pounds and ended up getting your diabetes under control on just metformin. And I, I should say we didn't talk about this, but when you, when you were first diagnosed with diabetes, your A1C was well above eleven. Getting down to a single agent monotherapy without insulin is pretty extraordinary. You know, how how did you do it? Like, what did you actually do to lose the weight, improve your lifestyle? Because these aren't just, you know, something you do and check off. I mean, this has to be a paradigm shift in the way you live your life. So what changes did you make? And uh, what were your biggest motivators?
2: Well, let's go talk about the biggest motivator. The biggest motivator for me was I didn't want to end up with this diabetic feet and be, you know, compromised as far as the health is concerned later down the road. And, of course, I don't like getting stuck with needles. So that was my biggest Uh, motivator. I know you guys do. I I deal with needles all day long, but it's like getting poked in me. So that was the biggest part of it. And the biggest part was this, my wife, because she was the motivating factor in a sense of how to eat and control all the high carb foods up there so she went around and started making all these low carb foods you know and she herself ate that part so because you know you get tempted if someone's eating french fries <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so that was i had a big help in in my, my my diet control as i would say you know for that more of a diabetic diet control so i looked at around online with her and we found out what what interest me. And you know, so basically we got the low carb diet and exercise, walking, not rigorous exercise. So I just picked up
0: walking, you know, usually about a mile a day, you know, and uh, that out a lot. You know, making such a profound change can be extraordinarily difficult. And you did an incredible job. I'm um, actually in the nuclear lab when I spent my month with Canuck, we take our daily coffee break. Somebody <laughs> offered him a glazed donut to his face and he uh, he was able to, to to turn it down cold, <laughs> which I thought was incredible. We took a lot of coffee. Said, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, actually, that's, a, that's, that's like a, the highlight. That may be the takeaway.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's portion. But no, remember, um, Jabril brought those um, crackers, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the first thing he did was he looked at the nutritional facts and he said, oh, there's no way I can have that. Yeah. You know, he just put yeah. it down
0: without a, even
1: a hesitation.
0: How can we help our patients get similar success? Is there anything you found particularly helpful or, you know, you mentioned those motivating factors, but... If there's someone who's maybe not as intrinsically motivated as, as you were to start, is there something that we as physicians can do to help them?
2: Oh, absolutely. What they need to do is we need to show the patients when they're diabetic is... You know, I, I can't re-emphasize this, but the diabetic education is very, very important because people don't go there and they don't understand what what intake of the food does to the body, mm-hmm. you know? And they don't know how to read the labels. Those are the two critical parts that they should look... And the other thing is the family support. So if they're married or have a spouse or. Significant other, of kids were, they should also get involved with the patient management, you know, uh, in a sense. Because my wife got involved with it, and she had to give up. I feel sorry for her; she had to get <laughs> <laughs> all the sweets and everything else too. She's she's not diabetic, but she, with me, she may be sneaking it after I'm going to work <laughs> because the the chocolate box is half empty. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we talked about the conservation of mass too. Yeah, so exactly. Going, you know? <laughs> but she doesn't, she hides it or whatever, which is fine. You know?
2: <laughs> but they should, I mean, you know, if they're living, it, it helps out when you have, have, have someone, a buddy or someone mm-hmm. who's helping you out mm-hmm. along the line so you don't feel so bad, you know? Sure. Uh, so that's the biggest thing that maybe as a physician you should get the family members involved, you know?
1: Yeah. We always talk about a therapeutic alliance with the patient, but creating a support network around the patient is also so important. You know, So thank goodness uh, for your wife. I don't feel sorry for her because in return, <laughs> she gets time with you. So I think yeah, that's true. Hard. I'm going to move on to the year 2018. Sure. Despite doing everything you possibly could, this was a year that you had a major heart attack. Would you mind describing what you were feeling by the time you'd gotten to the hospital? Definitely. Before I went to the ER room, it, it started about three, four days before. So I was having
2: little, and usually the funny thing is it always starts in the morning. And from what I've read, heart attacks usually happens in the morning. You know, I don't have no idea why. I'll let you guys figure that out. <laughs> But uh, I usually start here at about 4.35 in the morning. So I'm walking in and I get a, all of a sudden like, like a heartburn. And I'm going, mm, maybe it's the spices that I'm eating, you know. So I come down, drink water. I'm okay. Then it resurfaces two days later, you know. And I go, hmm, this heartburn. So I tell the wife she's cooking too hot stuff. So she cools that down. And the, the one, I was off that week and I get up early on Wednesday. Uh, of that week and I'm getting sweating and I'm getting radiating pain on my upper left chest and then I checked my blood pressure, it's a little high, about around 150, 160 up there, you know, and I knew something is wrong. I'm not feeling well, you know, I mean, just physically standing up, I'm dizzy a little bit. So I Hmm. got the wife up and this was about 5.30 in the morning so I got the wife up there, uh, she likes to sleep, you know, I'm (laughs) really right. (laughs) So got her up, she quickly got dressed and we went to the ER and I told them, they walked me right in. They were very good, actually, the people. Uh, so I don't I'm having chest pain. So they quickly took me down, put the EKG and so forth. And so I don't know the first EKG, they didn't tell me anything about it. And he said, how's your pain? I said, ah, it's still there. He says, let's try nitro. I said, yeah, sure. So we tried nitro and then he asked me, you know, what, five minutes later, how's your pain? Said, ah, it's getting better, you know? Then he took another EKG and I was, sure enough, there was abnormal EKG. They didn't tell me about this. <laughs> mm. So they made all of these calls up there. And of course, working with you guys, I don't know, you guys did behind my back all these things up there. I was in the chopper coming to the main campus from Twinsburg, main campus, 20 minutes. On the, the flight, actually, they told me it's like, hey, are you going to the CAT lab? You said, you're familiar with the cath lab? I go, yeah, I shook my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, gee, I see all these guys, wonderful people. <laughs> Anyways, went down to the CAT lab and they. And I got it. And before I realized, they were caffeine. They go, oh, we're going to caffeine. That's about. And after the first caffeine was done, they explained me a little later on. Went to the ICU room. And that's when they called me that I had a STEMI, you know. The, the wife is standing there. I go, what are you playing with STEMS for, you know? <laughs> like little limb STEMS, you know? Yeah. I go, don't worry about it. It's... <laughs> She's not being a medical, you know? So, but anyways, explained. So, that's when I found out, really, that I had a STEMI. I knew I had a heart problems in the ER. Because they said, oh, yeah, it's abnormal. So I knew. And then when they told me they were flying, so I knew I was going to get stented uh, mm. on that one. So I knew there was a heart, but not the exact condition of
1: it. So just for the audience, actually, the, the very first EKG you had kind of was not particularly concerning. You know, it's something that evolved with time when they checked a repeat EKG. And so I think for the audience, it just highlights the importance of checking serial EKGs as time goes on. So you covered the events of this episode, but I'd like to hear about your emotions, your perspective, your thoughts during this episode. You know, like we know what happened from A to Z and and what they ended up doing. But what were you thinking? What were you feeling? And do you feel that maybe they shared information in a different way, for instance? What was that like for you?
2: I wasn't too much concerned with the information because I knew when they put me in the chopper and they told me that you're having heart problems, we're going to fly you to the main campus. So medically, I knew what was going to happen, but it's just all these other thoughts that go, it's like, oh my God, am I going to die? Am I going to do this thing? What are going to, people going to, you know, left behind up there? What are they going to do? Are they going to be able to do all these thoughts? They run into like thousands of thoughts runs into your mind, you know? You're least worried about because you're in good hands you know? <laughs> when you're with the physicians. Uh, at least with me, I was in good hands, you know. So I think that was my list of my. But all these other thought pops in the head, you know. What is the kid's going to do? When's he going to get married? When's the kid the wife's going to do? All these things. What's going to happen with the house if it breaks down? All these things of the little things. So these are all the thoughts that are running into the head, and uh, you know, you don't think about 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 that you guys are going to fix me up and I'll be okay you
4: know? yeah.
2: as a patient. You know, you think about all these other th- stuff.
1: In the heat of the moment, literally being in the midst of a heart attack, all the thoughts that you recounted were related to your love for your family. You know, it's very special. Yeah. And
2: that's what you think. It's like, oh, my God, am I mean to people? Am I this thing? All this thought flashes across your mm-hmm. mind, you know, running all these scenarios in the head, you know. It's like, wow. did I do bad to people? Did I do this thing? Am I going to die? Am I going to come out okay, you know? Am I going to survive, not survive? I've got all these things that I want to complete, you know, that it's going to be left out. And, all these things. So it's not a really pleasant event that goes on to your head at that time. No. <laughs> and no one you, you can share with that thing because it's like, people go, are you crazy? Just shut up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we'll take care of you. <laughs> so, Kanak, I think a, a lot of us are used to being on one side of the, the cath procedure. Can you describe what it was like having the cath done? And were you awake? When oh, the, yeah. When the, yeah. I was awake, you know. I mean... It's cold, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. and you know you're pretty much down to your bare stuff in a sense because they have to do all the cathing and and stay. So the first thing, though, you, people are wonderful in our our cath lab. They're great. The nurses, the technologists, the physicians, the fellows—they're wonderful people. They took care of it, and they're always concerned with my pain. But you know, then you see all this you. The, is not there actually you know when they're going up there because they numb you pretty good when they insert the cath and you do feel uh, as if something is moving around in your body you know mm. so, and, and since you're cold you, you want to take a deep breath in just your reflexes mm. <laughs> and uh, whoever's cathing they to stop holding hold your breath you know <laughs> because the dye washes out and it's like okay it's very difficult you know <laughs> to yeah, hold the breath you that. know It's like, because I I guess when you take a deep breath, the dye washes out and they have to inject more dye. So it becomes a problem because the the cat lab is cold because you have to keep it cold on that one, just the temperature because of all these other requirements. And for a patient, you know, you take deep breaths, there's a constant battle. (laughs) And uh, you're awake and they're very good. So you can feel something prodding inside your body, but it's not painful, Mm -hmm. you know. It's a little discomfort. But I
0: think it's okay, you know. And then along with that, how was your experience afterwards and, and in the recovery? And I, and I will say, actually, in the CICU afterwards, that's the first time I ever met you. I was a first-year fellow. And uh, they told me, hey, Canuck is coming in. I didn't know who you were at the time. And it became very apparent very quickly what you meant to people here. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? And
2: in- tell you, I, you guys took care of me very well. I didn't feel that I was a patient there. I felt like a VIP of the, you know, <laughs> you guys checking on me every hour, you know, it's like, you didn't anything? But besides that point, you know, the I, ICU was, honestly, the bed itself gets to be a little uncomfortable, even though the beds are very high-quality beds and everything, just uh, because you don't get back sores and everything. So, and they don't let you get out of bed because they want you to recover. So it's, uh, from patient perspective, it's discomfort. Sitting there, lying down there, can get up and everything. So it's a little bit, but at the end, it's all okay, you know, coming down because the restriction of the visitors are restricted because of ICU and all those things. So as a patient, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do about these things, you know. But I was in a good hands. You guys came around, talked to me, (laughs) visited me. So I didn't feel that much, you know.
1: We can't even begin to imagine what the whole process of having had a heart attack was like for you what impact did surviving heart attack have on your perspective on life your health and how you spend your time you
2: reevaluate your life you know and you identify what's important in life to you you know is getting money or giving financial things uh, all that important at the end you know so it reevaluates your thinking so basically what happens is is you balance your time out with your families your friends and your work in that and taking care of yourself. I mean, we're not going to live forever. That's a given fact. There, you know, but we can live a very quality life instead of getting bedridden or wheelchair ridden, or you can't do. At least you're able to move around. And you know, everyone will die. That's inevitable. That's part of life. But we can get maximum out of these things. You know, so that's that's a part. So I've kind of slowed down in a sense. I smell the roses every now and then. <laughs> And I try to, you know, so it's a little more impact and I do regular exercise and just to be, you know, don't want to overdo it, underdo it and give everyone the proper time with friends and families and coworkers and everyone. So make a little dent so they'll remember you (laughs) for a few years.
1: (laughs) You know, you made made a dent in a lot of people kind of... Actually, I do want to ask you after you were discharged, did you go through cardiac rehab and what was that like? Was it useful for you?
2: I think cardiac rehab is one of the greatest thing people should do because with the control with the physiologist up there, they monitor you with the EKG. They show you the right way to do exercises. You know, I mean, I I was exercising, but was I doing it right? Probably not. You know, so they monitor you and they tell you how to do these exercises and a little bit all this different. So makes you a better uh, exerciser. You know? <laughs> And, and you yeah, it's a 12-week program, three days a week, usually about an hour of solid exercise. And it felt really great. Very good. And, you know, for me, I mean, that exercise was really great. I keep up with it uh, now. And that brings the sugar level down, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was a plus-plus for me, you know. The thing is, they really showed me how to walk and exercise, you know, with all these different parts of it, right? So it's a good idea to take this cardiac rehab.
4: <laughs> Hello, I'm Wyel Jaber, I'm a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic and I had the privilege of taking care of our patient here. This was a difficult situation at multiple levels. Most important, I think, from my perspective, is the fact that objectivity in the way we look at our patients goes out the window when we deal with patients who are close associates, friends, and families. And we often miss a lot of the cues about the risk factors Symptoms. Sometimes we exaggerate the symptoms if we have a nervous attitude about life, or minimize the symptoms if we're laissez passer or laissez faire about life. And anyway, so with the presentation like this, we try to balance that with our belief that we can provide better care for people we love and appreciate, and advocate for them. And that's the role I've actually have taken with our patient: is try to balance his risk factors, his ethnicity, his symptoms. So we try to balance that with the best medical therapy we can provide him. To achieve two objectives, first is to return him to his normal functional life. This is a gentleman who is not only important for us inside the walls of the Cleveland Clinic where he contributed to the education and career advancement of really over 100 fellows over the years. But also he's a very active member and an asset in his community, taking care of many, many individuals financially, financially, Socially, even he's the on-call electrician and plumber for uh, many of his uh, neighbors. He does it pro bono. Uh, So this is a person who's very active, both here and outside the walls of our institution. So we offered him the best advice we can. And I learned two lessons from this uh, individual. The first one is uh, keep an open mind about the symptoms. And the second uh, most important uh, one is uh, when he came back after his procedures with uh, symptoms uh, we kept looking for uh, coronary artery disease and his symptoms were uh, were marked shortness of breath which he didn't have before the procedure and uh, we kept looking for uh, coronary artery disease of course uh, we were looking for uh, the common thing and it turns out this is a side effect of his uh, antiplatelets medications and once we stopped them, it was like a miracle the symptoms went away within 24 hours and he finally went back to normal. So again, it's a privilege uh, taking care of our patient, and thank you for uh, inviting me for this podcast.
0: Kanap, what message do you have for other patients that might be living with heart disease? Listen to your physicians, take the advice,
2: and make sure that uh, you do what the, your medications are very important because if they don't take medication, that becomes a problem. And uh, you know, exercise, if your physician tells you to exercise, and that is very... And get your family members involved, you know, because when you have support groups, as I, as you know, I use family because I'm fortunate, but people may not have... Anyone other, but they might. but en- 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 enroll in some support groups. I'm sure they are there out there. I'm sure the physicians could advise them. And you can get a quality life out of these things, in a sense, if you just listen and take a little
0: back seat and understand what is there. And uh, what message do you have for our cardio nerds who take care of patients with heart disease?
2: I think the biggest message is I, I know with all this HIPAA compliance and everything else, you can't get people involved or the family members involved so it's a little uh, daunting task but if they could I think they should involve the family or or enroll them in support groups and you know get to know the patient a little bit better I know time is restrictive and all this thing is not
1: always possible
3: for
2: the, but if they make an attempt maybe we can change
3: one
1: or two lives you know it's incredible connect I can't tell you how special this was for us to hear your perspective through all this you know these Moments that we went through that are part of your life, we come across them day in and day out with countless patients that we come in contact with and take care of. But the perspective that you bring to us adds a whole different level of understanding and how to maximize every visit with those patients. And so I just have to say that you've taught whole generations of cardiovascular fellows here at the Cleveland Clinic basic concepts of nuclear lab. And and now you've also taught countless audience uh, about what it really means to take care of people with heart disease. So thank you so much.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys.
3: Whenever Canuck's name came up, everyone's face in the room always filled with joy. Canuck is such a special person to all of the fellows at the Cleveland Clinic. He is the jewel of the nuclear hot lab and the master educator of nuclear lab science. Canuck makes sure that the hot lab rotation is one of the most enjoyable experiences for each fellow that rotates through it. When there is a fellow in the lab, he will come in at the crack of dawn just to tuck things away so the lab can be operational so that he can dedicate hours of protected teaching time over the course of the month This ranged from one-on-one didactics on radiation safety to touring the deepest basements of the clinic to watch the cyclotron do its magic in creating radioisotopes. Of course, every day always ended with the well-known coffee time. Here he and the fellow would just kick back, relax, talk about life, family, major plans, and every now and then he'd give his pearls on how to make very smart investments. Prior to nuclear boards, Kanak would hold a special teaching session to review everything he went over in the hot lab to ensure we had all the information we needed to do the best we could on the test. As a group, we would always enjoy the pearls Kanak would give to the rotating fellow who would share them in the fellow's office when they were done for the day. It was one of the best times of the day. Then I distinctly remember coming into work one day, seeing that hot lab fellow, not in the hot lab, but they were sitting actually at their cubicle in the office. Kanak had not shown up to work that day. And this was actually very unusual because he's actually one of the most punctual people we knew. We later found out that he had suffered from an MI. A great sense of concern quickly filled the room as there was so much uncertainty in how he was doing. Fortunately, a few hours later, the news came actually from him that he was doing just fine. There was an immediate sense of relief in the room, as well as amongst the faculty, reflecting how much of an impact he had on those around him. He was a star even on the nursing wards, and his room would be full of visitors from across the hospital. Even when he needed to focus on his own recovery, he still kept the fellows in his mind. He would go to the nurses' station overnight, ask the nurses if the moonlighting fellows on that day were doing okay or if they needed anything. This is just a small glimpse of how special Canuck is. The fellows are so lucky to have him not only as a teacher, but also as an amazing friend. Thank you, Ganak, for all that you
0: do.